Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hey, how is it going? And today we're talking about Uncut Gems. Howard, hello? I'm standing here, man. There's a lot of people I could be doing business with other than you, Howard. You're, you're, you're falling apart. You're looking like a fool out here in the Diamond District. Looking through fucking fish. Come on, man. I gave you eight years of my life and you can't even fucking uh, talk to me and then look me in the eyes. Man the fucking man. Holy shit, I'm gonna come. And fuck you, man. I'm finished with this shithole. This is a fast-paced New York City crime gambling dramatic thriller. Directed by brothers Benny Safety and Josh Safety. The cast includes Happy Gilmore, Elsa the Ice Queen, Tall Basketball Man, Cassius Green, Abel Tresfay, aka The Weeknd, Trinidad James, and Doc Rivers. I watched this movie on Netflix. Joey, where did you watch it? I also watched it on Netflix. Netflix's flagship movie. For like I know. Months. It's been promoted on, uh, to me on Netflix for a while. Finally, I smashed the watch button. 96% match, according Dang. to Netflix. So they're, Don't they're, know what that means. They're <laughs> waiting. They're like, hey, man, <laughs> why haven't you watched this yet? What's the, I want to see what the 1% matches are for me. What's something <laughs> they think I'm going to hate? <laughs> uh, Joey, why don't you give us the synopsis for Uncut Gems? Well... Kevin Garnett demands The Rock. What else is new? Right. <laughs> I know. I can't believe they made a whole movie about Kevin Garnett demanding The Rock. Just watch any of his career highlights. Come on. <laughs> um, all right. So why don't let's start with our pros and cons, as we always do. Joey, what did you like about Uncut Gems? I like that it was unique. Um, there's some really good acting from surprising places, uh, quick and engaging storytelling, and uh, appropriate stakes that really grip you. Like, it's not, not super high stakes, not the end of the world, not city's not going to blow up, you know, just one guy's life about to be uh, implode, but yet you still care. I, uh, yeah, I think this movie was fast-paced and intense pretty much all the way through. Uh, Kevin Garnett, especially Kevin Garnett, but also The Weeknd, deliver in their cameo roles. I mean, I don't even know if you can call Kevin Garnett's role a cameo, uh, but he does play himself. It has this movie has a very realistic feel to it, especially when it gets to the dialogue, and and we'll definitely uh, talk about that more. The uh, the cool the rock transition, or it's like a rock zoom transition that happens at the it kind of bookends this film. I think that that is really well done, really memorable, really unique. That's really cool. Yeah, very colorful, very good visuals there. This movie has a heavy dose of basketball, which is not itself a pro, but for me it is. <laughs> and I, for me, the the highest praise I can give to the jaw dropping climactic finish. Um, yes, that and climax is really great. It's, it's really a, gripping. Yes, and I'm just you're on the edge of your seat and you're like you're sweating the whole time. It's really cool. Definitely, yeah, I want to yeah. echo definitely. Kevin Garnett really delivers. I really appreciate what he did in this movie because he like humbles himself to be flawed in this movie, mm -hmm. right? He doesn't like nothing about his basketball stuff, but he's like kind of, he's like really materialistic. He's like obsessed with jewelry and like and like stones and stuff, which is not like necessarily the most flattering way to portray yourself. So. To like branch out into like a different audience that norm that wouldn't necessarily know who you are and then portray yourself as being kind of this Lord like not power hungry but like really materialistic person like I think was brave and I really 
I, I thought it was great. I think he did a really good job. I was really surprised. That is high praise. Um, and I, I mean, we can talk more about Kevin Garnett in a moment. For for now, let's talk about our cons. What do we not like about Uncut Gems? Uh, go ahead, Joy. I don't think Adam Sandler is really that good. I don't think he's good enough to carry this movie. Um, and I'll get more into that in a minute. Uh, there's lots of plot threads that just kind of fall apart and like just kind of disintegrate in front of you, and I don't understand what's happening. Um, it's really episodic which I didn't like very much. There's a lot of, even though it takes place over a couple of days, it's like a bunch of tiny events in a row, right? That kind of lead up to the climax, but they don't necessarily directly connect to each other. And it really does feel kind of, it really feels disconnected is the way I keep describing it. It's not connected, it's disconnected. Okay, okay. And I don't appreciate that very much, especially watching, recently watching Mr. Holland's opus, which is like, I take its place over several decades of this man's life. But everything ties back in together in this nice way. It's like there's like kind of episodes in, inside there, but everything kind of leads into the next thing. You can see this person grow and change over a long period of time. This movie does something similar in that there's a bunch of different events, but you don't really see Adam Sandler grow and change over a couple of days. You don't really see things like connect in a way. It's really just like, look at all these wacky hijinks he gets up to and how they're all like, it's all part of his life and he has to juggle all of them. It's like... Eh, I don't know. I, I was just not that invested in the story as much. It, there was a couple of moments that got you, but it was almost despite what they had done before. What about you? Overall, I like this movie. I enjoyed the experience, but I do feel like it's a surface level experience with not much depth. Like it's something that you can go through, but after it's, it's, I mean, it's ironic that we're making a whole podcast about it or committing our time <laughs> to talking about it, but I do feel like it is. Um, it's more something that you'd rather experience than reflect on or think about. Um, and we'll expand on that, of course, in our overall section. So let's get to it, Joey. Uh, take it away. Okay. I got a lot. I wrote a lot about this <laughs> movie that I didn't like that much. Um, this movie <laughs> is weird and not in a way that I really appreciate. It's The story is really disconnected. It feels like it doesn't make sense in a lot of areas. Lots of things happen, yet it feels like nothing really happens. Um, I keep waiting. I kept waiting for the movie to start and it just doesn't really. I think the premise is pretty good and I think there are some surprising moments that work really well. I really like the setting. I really like New York City seen through Howard's eyes and I think the characters are complex enough for you to care about them and I was invested in what was going on for the most part. Um, I think the camera work is pretty good. It's all kind of shaky as points. It's a little chaotic, which matches the tone really well. I like the weird transitions at the beginning and at the end, like you mentioned before, and I really like the ending. I think the, um, the ending was, was great. Uh, all the way up to that, the, the final moments of the film, I thought I, I was really like, oh man, what's gonna happen, what's gonna happen? Um, but there are several things that, that uh, rubbed me the wrong way. First thing is the dialogue. I, I knew you were going to say this. <laughs> While I was watching it, I was like, oh no, Joey's not going to be a fan of the dialogue. No. I've said this before on the podcast, but I feel like it bears repeating. Movie dialogue, to me, should not be lifted from the street. It should, be re- it should reflect. It should not reflect reality perfectly. It should be elevated and more pointed and even more poetic. This movie dialogue simply does not matter. I swear you could watch this movie on mute and it would not change your viewing experience at all. Wow. And I think this movie agrees with me. 
at the very beginning, the words are being are being shouted by a crowd of people that are non-English speakers. So, and there's no subtitles or anything. You just have to make by context what's going on, which is fine. But it's just kind of like that chaos, like, oh, everyone's shouting, everyone's shouting, everyone's shouting. You don't understand what's going on specifically. You just kind of see what's happening and see people react to it, right? And well, then, yeah, I mean, the, well, I mean, because I, that specific scene, the opening scene, I was wondering why all these guys were specifically distraught about this one guy getting hurt, because in that sense, it makes me think maybe this is actually a very safe workplace, and this guy getting mm. hurt is way out of the ordinary, or maybe it's not. Maybe he was is malicious the way he was hurt, or bad business practices. Or maybe I have this no is idea. the final straw. You know, maybe this is the third guy this week, and they're really upset about that. You know, like who knows? There's no there's no real context there, but it doesn't really matter that much. You they never return to that, right? But the very first things you hear from any named character, or even like the doctor who's doing the colonoscopy at the very beginning, it's all obscured by the music. The score is like over top of that. And even when you start hearing Howard speak, right in the uh, in the jewelry shop, you can't. It's like half of it is obscured by the by the score. I mean, I was pretty quick quick to turn on the subtitles because I was like, I don't understand what they're saying, um, but. I feel like that that subtly indicates that the dialogue is just not that important. And it's hard to understand. Not only is it hard to understand what Howard is saying, um, but even harder to understand what's happening in this few minutes, which I think is on purpose. But again, you kind of get the gist of it, right? And it doesn't really matter what he's saying as much as the way he says it. I don't think this is necessarily wrong. It's something that I don't like. Um, but it bothers me because I'm a sucker for really good, great dialogue. I'm the kind of person who can't listen to pop music because the lyrics make no sense to me. That that it warms my way in my head. And like you didn't, that doesn't make any sense. You're contradicting yourself, and it makes me annoyed. Uh, other people, that, that doesn't seem to bother as much as as it does but me. I it's a choice that they made for this movie, and I think it works, and that it helps sell the chaos that is constantly surrounding Howard. But it takes one dimension of film, which is the dialogue, and reduces it to simply establish tone. And I think that's a shame. It, it makes it, it's reductionary, as you like to say. Yeah, Derisa. yeah. It's definitely, I, I totally agree. It's very noticeable. Um, like at first glance, this can seem like a really positive aspect because it adds to the um, immersion. I actually thought this was going to be like a heavier theme. And I mean, you could say it's kind of a theme for like the directing style. This movie was its own uncut gem, right? Like mm. it was very unrefined in the sense ah. that the dialogue <laughs> seemed like it was lifted straight from the streets. So it, it almost felt like that's why I was saying it, it kind of felt like this movie had a realistic feel. It almost felt like we were just witnessing this guy's life as opposed to seeing a movie telling a story, right? Yeah, yeah. Where you just happen to be there for certain scenes and in real life scenes don't really play are no scenes you know things just happen um and, and it it has different levels there are definitely times where it does feel more like a cinematic experience and sometimes where it feels like they just turn the camera on in the middle of a chaotic moment where everybody's talking and people aren't waiting for other people before they say something um and it's 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 like you said, it kind of takes away from the overall experience because it takes an important aspect of the film and kind of makes it one note. You're just, they're just talking. Like the whole movie uh, isn't like this, but overall it leaves behind a trail of scenes where it feels like nothing memorable was said. Right. I actually just, bef like earlier this week, I watched Knives Out 
And yes. a character like uh, Benoit Blanc is so quotable because everything he says is so intentional. Uh, and you compare that to Howard, where it's it's tough to remember anything he said that really sticks out, uh, apart from a few from a couple of scenes. So yeah, um, yeah I agree with you. Oh, like from one, you, you can, it is very intentional. It's a decision that they made. That's fine. It definitely gives this movie a unique feel, but it's not one that I really care for. Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> I think it's worth worth repeating, though, that what you just said about how it feels more real and it feels like there's no scenes in real life. I think that's that's an interesting take. and It, it kind of makes me feel more sympathetic toward it. But um, yeah, I, I overall, I, it was... What's the word? It's like discordant. It's like it was... Uh, it was not like aligning in my head as I expected, I guess. And so that made me, that made me feel, uh, I don't know, off, off kilter in a way. Yeah. And, and I want to, um, like you were saying, like there are times where the soundtrack is over, uh, like kind of over the dialogue and it's hard to understand. And that is confusing, but this movie does a good job of making things so clear through actions that it's not necessarily that important. For instance, yes. I had no idea what the name of, Howard's brother-in-law is the one he owes a hundred thousand dollars to I didn't know his name did not matter I saw his face when it mattered I saw his goons when it mattered it doesn't matter what his name is even though they do say it the the first time he talks about him was on the phone when he's calling him and I couldn't understand what he was saying (laughs) which is frustrating you know um I actually intentionally didn't have uh closed uh, captions on so that i could because once i noticed that i was like i want to see how understandable this movie is um but i think the movie doesn't it doesn't it, it, the movie can carry itself without understandable dialogue but like we said all those other things like it, it does take away in some aspects yeah yeah because it's not utilizing one of its tools right mm-hmm. it's saying oh this is like we're not gonna even try <laughs> to write dialogue we're just gonna uh you know we're just gonna use it to establish what our tone is you know like there's other ways of doing that and they and they do that well with the camera work and with howard like uh, adam sandler's acting it, so yeah I, I don't know i just not a choice i necessarily agree with okay my second my second thing that really bothered me was uh damani uh it was played by lakeith stanfield I really really like I I thought he's in, he's absolutely incredible in Sorry to Bother You which is one of my favorite movies that we watched for the podcast and he delivers in, in a smaller role here um, just the way he kind of carries himself and interacts with the other characters just show how talented he is as an actor you know he's so he's so different in this than he is in Sorry to Bother You or, or in um, Knives Out even um, the problem is not with Stanfield it's with his character Damani Damani is like an on-the-street salesman who has connections with big celebrities and lots of with lots of disposable income. Um, and he clearly works for Howard, but just like everyone else, Howard takes advantage of him. But like for the first hour of the movie, Damani just kind of disappears. He sends Howard cryptic messages. He di- seems difficult to find, and he just asks acts super weird. I just don't really understand what's ha- what's supposed to be happening here. Like, why does he show up? Why does he show up at the auction house without the gem? And why does he drive all the way to Philly with Howard just to leave Howard outside? You know, there's no explanation. And then like later on, he sees him in the club and he's like, hey, uh, you know, that we had a deal. Where's the gem? And Donnie's like, oh, I don't have it with me. And Howard's just like, well, th- you're screwing me. And Donnie's like, well, go screw yourself. So I don't care. Like. What's going on here? What is the what is the interaction they have at this point? And it's not until later that Damani finds out that Howard has been like selling his watches behind his back. You know, it's like what, like 
I thought he was his employee. Why is he acting so like, you know, stand like so of like why is he avoiding him and and being so unclear about what's happening? I don't well, know. Well, this is another situation where it this definitely can seem like a cop out answer, but it's another uncut gem. You know, this movie isn't a movie. It's a real life. It's so realistic that sometimes things happen in real life and you're like, why did that even happen? You know, and there's not necessarily an explicit explanation from the perspective of the protagonist, right? Because maybe Damani just, he can't do it because Garnett wouldn't give it up, you know? And as the connection to celebrities, he understands that's just how it is sometimes. Sometimes big celebrities don't play by the rules. And if they want to hold on to the rock, they're going to hold on to the rock, especially yeah, well, KG's yeah. gonna hang on to the rock, dude. Come on. Use use the, use use the dialogue that's available to you and explain what's happening, or at least give a clue, right? Yeah. Like I I could infer that was what's happening. I think your interpretation is probably right, but I never there's nothing in the text that that uh, supports that besides yeah. Damani just acting super strange once KG shows up. So like. I don't know. I just, it was so strange for me that they spent so much time in this movie talking about this opal and, and having the, like this main thing be that, uh, that, uh, Kevin Garnett has it, but that he, um, and Adam Sandler needs it and he can't get it. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, like uh, what I, what I don't understand about this specifically is that this movie is kind of about Howard and about how he's, he creates the chaos around him, right? He is the center of this hurricane, but he's also the cause of it. He's he's the one who's who's put himself in the situation he's in. But this is not that, right? He lends the the rock to Kevin Garnett as a as an act of goodwill, not as an act to try to screw him necessarily, right? Uh, or maybe you know maybe he does. Maybe he is thinking that far ahead. Maybe because he wants to get the ring so that he can like put that up so that he can get money so he can bet on something. Maybe that was all part of the plan. I don't know. Like, it seems so strange, though, that, like, this one aspect is completely out of his control, and it wasn't his fault. You know what I mean? No, I agree with that. It kind of is off. It doesn't follow the rest of the action in this movie. That's pretty much all self-inflicted by Howard. This one's totally out of his control. And, you know, maybe you have some sort of, you can imply or you can assume that when you're dealing with a high-profile guy like Kevin Garnett, that it's going to change things. But again, the the movie doesn't really show that outside of the results, right? It doesn't give you the cause. It just shows you the results. It's like, well, I guess I can assume, based on what happened in retrospect, that Kevin Garnett is kind of unreliable. Right. And And it's just like a... I don't know it just makes the the whole experience very frustrating because then you're you're constantly thinking what's what am I supposed to be figuring out here you know is this a mystery like is there something going on that's going to be revealed eventually you know I feel like that takes you out of the movie whereas the rest the rest of it is kind of like a ride where you're you're kind of guided along through Howard's life and you're like oh like now this is happening let's see how he reacts to that now this is happening let's see what ha- how he deals with this situation whereas this it's like you're constantly like. like, like did I miss something? What is happening here? And I, I don't know. I, I just didn't. I felt like that was that really took you out of it. Yeah. No. I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I did like how uh, at the very beginning, uh, uh, Damani is with his friend Cash, <laughs> and he's very famously Cassius Green in "Sorry to Bother You." Um, and one more thing before I move on from Damani, is it pronounced laketh stanfield i feel like that's how i've heard it pronounced his the actor's actual name laketh i don't know i didn't look that up i thought it was i know we just spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to pronounce the weekend's name <laughs> um but okay anyways we'll, we'll we'll move on we'll move on 
we'll get it right next time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I got I got the last thing, and this is the biggest my biggest problem with this movie is Howard. Uh, and we'll, there's a couple of different dimensions of this. First, it took me a, a long time to figure out what Howard's deal was. Are the events in this movie normal? Is this just a day in his life? Are these, is this an especially hectic time? Because it seems like a lot of his life is kind of uh, falling apart at this specific moment. It doesn't just seem like uh, this is something totally, uh, totally normal for him. But does he mean to be in this situation? I have a, I have a quote here, which I think is what you may expect, uh, that will hopefully shed some light on the situation. It's a, this is a short soliloquy that Howard delivers to Kevin Garnett. Um, at, they're talking about how everyone is betting against Garnett to win, and Howard says this. You don't think you're going to get eight rebounds? These guys don't know shit about ball. What the fuck are they doing? Doesn't that make you want to fucking kill them? Doesn't that make you want to say, fuck you for doubting me? Doesn't that make you want to step on fucking Elton Brand's fucking neck? Come on, KG. This is no different than that. This is me. All right? I'm not a fucking athlete. This is my fucking way. This is how I win. All right? All the fucking hard work I do, all the fucking ass kicking and the dues I pay, you're not going to score on the big one on game seven? Fuck these people, right? That's how you feel. I know you do. So look. So this is a great example of the dialogue in the movie. The, the whole movie is like this, but this moment especially stands out because it's like, it's real focus. And you're like, wait, is something happening? Is something happening? Should I be paying attention to what he's saying finally? Um, but let's like break this down a little further. This moment comes directly after Howard is sobbing in his office because his entire life is crumbling around him. And it's entirely his own fault, and he knows it. But this is certainly a low point, right? If you're playing at home, this is the moment directly before the climax when our main <laughs> character has his most vulnerable, right? He's really down in his luck. All his friends are have turned against him or are dead. You know, he's like, well, I got, you got one last chance to stand up for yourself. Um, this is a conversation he has... Then he has this conversation with Kevin Garnett, and it's like, where did this come from? The implication by saying all this fucking ass kicking and the dues I pay, you're not going to score in the big one on game seven, is that he is doing this on purpose. He is pushing everyone uh, himself to the edge on purpose, and he wants to be in this precarious situation where everyone hates him and he burns bridges left and right, but I, I, just, I just don't see that, right? At no point do I feel like Howard is in control of the situation. He is constantly being harassed by people that he's screwed or trying to screw. His wife hates his guts. He's lying to his kids. He just kicked out his mistress. Like, this is my fucking way. This is how I win. Yeah, fuck you. That's not true. I don't <laughs> see the... I, I don't see how he's doing it on purpose and, like, how he can say, oh, this is how I win. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the puppet master. I have, I'm pulling all the strings. You're not. You're, you're a victim of the circumstance you put yourself in, and you just aren't clearly seeing far enough into the future to see how you can not get out of it, I guess. Well, my answer to that, because I totally agree, especially when you juxtapose this with what was just happening. He was just breaking down and realizing that everything keeps going wrong yes. for him, and that's a great time to decide, I'm going to do something different, right? But maybe... This movie is about gambling addiction and how <laughs> Howard can't help himself. Well, every time he gets even a little bit of money, he instantly tries to turn into more money through gambling. And yeah. even though that doesn't make you root for him, it doesn't make any sense. Addiction doesn't make sense. And it's, it's very destructive. So that is what I saw in that scene was that Howard is totally consumed by gambling addiction. And in a moment where 
Kevin Garnett comes to the rescue. Kevin Garnett brings enough money to resolve his debt with the goons who have been chasing him the whole movie, who are yep. really starting to screw him up at that point, where things are really getting bad for him. And he can pay back his uh, uncle, or his, uh, what was his uncle-in-law, yeah, who, yeah. who gave him the money in the auction. He can solve a lot of problems. His girlfriend is coming back. He could resolve a lot of his issues right here with just the money that Garnett... He, wouldn't, he would still have to keep working and be a normal dude, but he'd be in a better position he, than he was at the beginning of the movie. But instead, he decides, nah, I'm going <laughs> to risk all of it on Kevin Garnett. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think that what you've said makes a lot of sense. And my only answer is gambling addiction. That's what he has. I, I feel like you're, you're probably right about that. You know, I, there's a lot of evidence for that in this movie. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. But I think we can take this a little step further and maybe take a meta angle to this too, because I think you could also, I think you might be tempted to say that this quote is Adam Sandler talking to the audience as well. Right. I look, he says, look, I know I'm a punching bag for movie critics. I know my comedies actually suck, but look, this is how I win by appearing in more dramatic roles with higher stakes and more nuance. And I say that's bullshit as well. Red Letter Media uh, one of my favorite critics on YouTube cl make the claim often that Adam Sandler movies are actually just con jobs that the cl he claims to need tens of millions of dollars to make bad counties so that he can just give a massive payday to himself and his friends. I don't know if I would go that far, but I also don't agree with other critics that claim that Adam Sandler is actually secretly a good dramatic actor when he's given a good director and a good script that he'll really deliver. I've seen punch drunk love. Uh, he's been in a couple other ones that people claim are, are like he's uh, evidence that he's a good dramatic actor i liked his performance in that movie um this is but it's, it's it's largely similar to the one he's put he's in for uncut gems he's a deeply flawed character that you still feel for and want to see him succeed despite his issues and for most of gems i think he's fine maybe maybe even good uh the fast talking the frantic running around the yelling the constant improvision it's it's decent uh, what he falls apart in is the really weighty moments when he's being roughed up by the in the car by Arno and his goons. When he's being when he's asking his wife for a second chance. When when he's at this low point, crying in his office. Those moments don't do it for me. Maybe I don't see. Maybe I don't really see Sandler in those moments. But I certainly have lost sight of Howard. If that makes sense. Interesting. He, like, he's not. I don't know. It just doesn't do it. Like it's it's not convincing. It, I, I don't, I lose track of Howard in those moments. I just see some guy standing there, you know, and, and like his lack of reaction a lot of times is, is just so, I don't know. It, it doesn't, doesn't jive well with the rest of it, you know, especially since like, like it would be more interesting to see how he kind of finagles his way out of this. Maybe he just keeps talking or maybe he just, or maybe he like totally folds, you know, either way, like there's nothing there. He just kind of sits there and keeps repeating himself. And keeps repeating himself, and maybe that's like, you know, uh, I, I keep thinking about that moment with um with Julia when he breaks up with Julia uh, right after she's about to give weekend a hand job <laughs> yeah. um, in the bathroom, and uh, he like runs out to the car and he's like keeps yelling the same things at her and keeps like yelling at her to get out of the way of the cab and everything. There's no like I don't know I I just see a lot of like over like I don't know not overacting but just like. Oh, like an overcommittance to it. Like, oh, like I'm just yelling. I'm just yelling. Uh, it's not necessarily uh, portraying his emotions well in that moment. Not really. Or, but you know, it's also possible that um, part of his character is that he doesn't display emotions very well. But 
I don't know. That's not a very convincing character to play in a movie. <laughs> right, right. I mean, um, I like that you brought up Julia because I do think she actually did a really good job, especially in that scene where she was like screaming and you could really see like how panicked she was in that moment. Uh, yes. I was surprised how committed she was to uh, Howard, but it, yeah. it, that is who she is. And there's that moment when you're, when you're watching her from the side as she walks down the street, right? Her, her expression is, is real subtle, but like you can kind of see how she's feeling. And then the way she, she snaps at the people in line and everything, like it kind of reveals what she's feeling. You don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's, if it's because you don't see like uh, Adam Sandler's face in that as much, or if it's because um, he's just kind of saying the same thing over and over, but it's really Julia Fox in that scene that that shows you the stakes and and what's going on way more than howard right you don't really see you don't really understand what howard's doing is he bluffing is he is he does he really mean it you know it's it's too stoic for you to really get what he's going for i was excited about seeing this movie because i had heard a lot of good things about um adam sandler and and i do feel like he is good enough to carry what this movie is you know, as the main character, I think it is uh, interesting to see him. I've mostly only seen him in comedic roles. So it was nice uh, change of pace to see him in a dramatic role. But I didn't really see a best actor award in this movie. This, Even though it did receive at some music festival, he got best actor and he was nominated at others. It wasn't. It was just OK for me. Yeah, it was just OK for me as well. But okay, here's the other thing. It makes this more complicated. It's like I still wanted to see Howard succeed. Maybe Sandler is just really, really convincing as a sports fan, um, or maybe he's just you just want to see him win over on the really the the real antagonists of the movie, which are Arno and his goons, right? Or maybe he's just better than I'm giving credit for, and I'm just biased. Uh, I don't know, but I didn't like the performance, but I still wanted to see Howard come out on top. You know, I was like I, I maintain what I said at the beginning, like the the climax. At the movie when they they're locked in that that room and he's screaming at the TV, was great. It was really great, um, and uh, I I think a lot of credit should be given to Sandler for that. Yeah, I'm a sucker for rooting for the protagonist, no matter how bad of a person they are. So yeah. I did want Howard to succeed as well. Um, and another thing I want to give this movie credit for is that it made me feel something, and what it made me feel is anxiety. Okay, uh, <laughs> so many scenes are very tense Uh, and the movie relies heavily on putting you on the edge of your seat constantly so that you're always worried about what's going to happen next whether it's uh, Kevin Garnett's parlay at the beginning of the movie where he needs Kevin Garnett to play well um, or waiting on Damani to show up with the rock when he's at the auction place like he's on the phone with him and he's waiting when he's going to get here and then they go outside and that guy's pestering him and he gives him the watch and it's just all this chaos and you're just like oh man I just want this to be resolved and uh (laughs) Or trying to get the door open for KG and his guys when they finally come back with The Rock and they can't, no matter what they try, they can't get it open and everyone's tapping on the glass and Kevin Garnett is like, come on, man, he might leave. And, you know, it's you get get racing and then even the big Kevin Garnett parlay at the end of the movie where it's all on the line and you just, you're watching basketball. I mean, I was definitely guilty of putting my hands up in celebration when I saw Kevin Garnett (laughs) hit the elbow jumper to, to get to 18 points. Like, it was... I like that experience. You know, these scenes got me, got my heart racing. And I think that's great. Like I said, this movie made me feel something. But this, to me, is just a surface level experience. It's like riding a roller coaster where the theme is going really fast. You know, it's, right. it's just, 
like sure the thrills are great but it, there's nothing deeper there. Once you get off the ride, you can talk about how scared you were or how exciting the big climactic drop was. But you're not going to talk about how you discovered some sort of objective truth that the roller coaster <laughs> taught you. Okay? It's it's an experience that you can have, but you know, a lot of movies deliver on more than just an experience. Uh, yes. And I think that that is where it ends for this movie. You get this amazing adrenaline experience, but <laughs> you don't learn anything about yourself or even Howard outside of that. Besides maybe gambling addictions are bad. And uh, sure. so while I do enjoy the adrenaline, I do enjoy the thrills. I love that this movie delivers on that very well. That's about it. You know, it feels yeah. like it relies heavily on that. <laughs> it does rely on that a lot. I, I do like, yeah, I'm so glad at least that that scene where they're stuck in the, uh, in the box with Kevin and Kevin Garnett and the rest of his crew are all in there and they're trying to unlock it. I'm so glad that came back at least. Yeah. Like they were able to set that up because I was like, what is the point of this? While, while it was happening, I'm like, like, I, like, I feel just as anxious now as I did the rest of the movie, but like. What, like what is the purpose of this scene you know like, right. why are they why are we going through all of this yeah it just seemed like another moment to make you just like just to up up like turn the anxiety um dial up just a little higher oh, yeah you know i mean the movie's full of it even the scene where he goes up into the apartment it's like very low anxiety but still anxiety oh, yeah. where it's like oh is his son gonna find out like is she gonna be in the apartment you know and then she found out and he found out anyway from his neighbor who's trying to like yeah. like awkwardly avoid that by like introducing himself to his neighbors yeah that was that was hilarious um so yeah but i mean this uh, again it delivers well on the climax like the climax the climactic finish is what makes this movie truly memorable to me. Um, just when you think the plot has been resolved, Howard's riskiest bet of all pays off big. He'll be able to solve all his financial problems and some. Uh, suddenly, the, this goon pulls out his gun and blasts Howard in the face before, like, killing him instantly, like, before anyone can even say anything. Just yeah. so well-timed. Just, uh, you know, and right when you don't expect it. My jaw hit the floor, and honestly, I felt validated for having gone through the anxiety uh, of this entire movie, of all these times where I'm worried, oh my gosh, is he going to be okay? Is he not going to be okay? He's not. And that's no. the resolution of it in, in its entirety, which uh, I think is cathartic. I think it's a great way to end a movie that focuses so hard on this kind of anxiety thriller. Absolutely. I mean, there's no way that it would it could end happily in any other way, you know, yeah. like because it would just be a continuation of it because Howard would take that money and, and bet it again or, or something, right. you know, there's no reason to believe that he would be out of his situation and 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 it's also cathartic because you realize that 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 guy who like the what i don't know i guess he's like a the shakedown only, goon yeah shakedown goon he's great um <laughs> he uh, uh he is feeling the same anxiety you are yes. you know he's so frustrated with howard and how he's been he's like well i'm just gonna solve the problem right now i have the ability to and and then he does definitely right? and it's like it's like oh it sucks that howard died but it's also like hey Julia got the money, and I liked her more than I liked Howard. So, like, good for her. Like, she's going to be okay. I did, I did <laughs> like her more than Howard, too. And it does 
it does feel like realistic or at least that there are consequences for the thing Howard does because that guy pulls a gun out immediately when Howard locks him in the box. Yes. So it's kind of stupid to let them like, out after you do that. Um, yeah, yeah. And if you're the guy sitting in the box and you have nothing else to do, you're like, well, as soon as he opens the door, I'm, I'm going to kill yeah, him. Yeah, because obviously like, if you're in this line of work, <laughs> you might be a little unstable. So Howard was <laughs> foolish to let him in. Like, it makes sense. Like, it, it, it yes. the movie really does tie it all together right there at the end. And I think that's great. And if, to me, that that climactic scene, the, the the finish, is what helped him boost this movie into the you have to see it category. Because really? that's where this movie was, at least on social media, was it came out. And the debate was, is this a good movie or not? For sure. But everyone said, you got to see it and, and decide. And, and, mm. and I didn't have it spoiled somehow. And um, <laughs> I, it, this movie did well at the box office as well. Like it... Um, it made a lot more money than it took to produce it, and wow. uh, it's a successful film. And I think in no uh, and in large part due to this amazing climactic finish. Yeah, I think that 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 scene he has with Kevin Garnett, where he gives the speech about how I win, that was like a turning point for me. Um, but almost because it was so drastically different than the rest of the movie. And then this moment too was was good. I felt like I, again, just like you said, like actions had consequences for Howard as you saw throughout the movie it was consistent throughout all the things he tried to do some of them really failed um and he faced the consequences for that and that was that was good to see even though it was frustrating right right so yeah well I I gotta say like (laughs) I teased this at the end of our last episode where we were saying we were gonna watch uncut gems the this is how I win portion of that quote was definitely oversold by the meme usage. <laughs> I thought for sure that this is how I win was going to play a much larger role. That's uh, something that he said, like his catchphrase. Exactly. He's like, see you tomorrow, Julia. Remember, this is how I win. <laughs> or maybe it would be mul- yeah, used more than once. Or I mean, it is used in the most like pinnacle uh, moment of decision making because this really was his master plan. Uh, but when it came across, I was like, wait, was that it? dang it like that was not the this is how i win that i wanted you know right, uh, right. so i was i just want to follow up on that because i called this i i referenced this movie as <laughs> this is how i win the movie and that is right. way overdoing it this this line is not that pivotal <laughs> um so <laughs> just uh I still feel like I, I people know what movie you're talking about when you say that, but it's more as a result of the meme and not because of the movie itself. Uh, yeah, well, I'm going to refer to this as the Kevin Garnett rock movie from now on. Yes, so. I, I think I, that's another thing that I didn't recognize from just hearing about it from other people, that Kevin Garnett was going to play such a big role. But while we're talking about Kevin Garnett and how much he demands the rock, I wanted to ask you, is the opal, the rock that uh, you know shows up at the beginning, is it a MacGuffin? Is it a MacGuffin? All right, yes. I'll, I'll give you my... I just looked up the definition of MacGuffin. Okay. So I'll read that for you now, and we'll, we'll decide. Uh, this is from Wikipedia. In fiction, a MacGuffin is an object, device, or event that is necessary to the plot and the motivation of the characters, but insignificant, unimportant, or irrelevant in itself. The term was originated by Agnes MacPhail for film, adopted by Alfred Hitchcock, and later extended to similar device in other fiction. Um, another smaller, shorter, uh, definition from, uh, I think dictionary.com or Oxford languages, uh, an object or device in a movie or a hook, I'm sorry, an obvious, 
an, ob an object or device in a movie or a book that serves merely as a trigger for the plot. Um, so this would be something, uh, the Maltese Falcon is a very famous example of it, but it's something that like uh, all the characters want or are chasing, but like doesn't actually do anything, right? It's just like everyone wants it and it, there's some explanation for why they want it. Maybe it's just, it's a valuable object and they can sell it. So if they have it, then they have the ability to sell it and that will bring them whatever they want, right? It's it's a way to create uh, tension in your characters by uh, having them all go for the same exact thing. Oh, okay. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's very useful or well done, you know? Right. So, um, okay. So is the opal a a, a MacGuffin? I, okay, so it's hard to it's hard to say exactly, like, because the definitions we have here say that the object is essentially useless. Um, so it makes you think about like something like an infinity stone. Like, is that a MacGuffin? Because like once you get it, you get like special powers, right? right? And like everyone's chasing it, right? So it kind of has MacGuffin like like properties, but like it changes the person who has it, you know, and makes them into kind of a different character, or at least gives them different abilities, uh -huh. you know. So I don't know if that counts as a MacGuffin or not. And in that regard, um, the, the, the opal, is the opal of MacGuffin is a great question because it's kind of hinted that it might have magical powers. And it, the movie kind of implies sort of, like, it's very loose that it, there is like, like luck or like good fortune associated with owning this object. And um, I think that's really interesting. And I think it kind of puts it in the, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not a MacGuffin. Okay. Kind of thing. Well, because I always understand uh, the way I understand it is MacGuffins are a uh, plot crutch. They are something yes. that you do if you aren't good enough at writing a plot. You need a MacGuffin to drive the narrative because you can't. You're not. You know, witty enough to come up with something more clever. Well, you have to like create motivations for your characters beyond I want rock. Right. You know. You like I like I want rock because is a little bit better. But it, it's it's better to be like, well, I want this person to not have rock. You know, that's a little more interesting. Okay. Well, because it um this this scenario actually reminds me of an episode of Frasier where oh no, a, it doesn't a player for <laughs> the um the Seattle SuperSonics is uh, struggling with mental health issues. So he goes and sees Niles, who's a therapist uh, or psychiatrist, and. Niles talks to him through some of his issues and the basketball player ruffles Niles his hair at the end and he has an amazing game. So Niles is sitting there thinking my uh, th the therapy I put him through was so good. It got his mind right. And now he's playing amazing. But the basketball player, all he understands is I touched your head and then I had a good game. So you're my lucky, <laughs> you're my, you know, my good luck charm. And he brings Niles to every game and touches his head so that he can have a great game. And every time he does that, he plays amazing. And when Niles doesn't show up, he doesn't play good. And that's exactly what the Opal does for Kevin Garnett. You can yes. say it has magical powers. It has magical basketball powers and makes the Celtics win and makes Kevin Garnett play well. But it can also just be a mental thing. And Kevin Garnett just feels confident. It's like his lucky underwear. It's just yes, it something is. he assigns responsibility for his performance to. But if you don't believe in you know myths or, or luck, you could say, no, Kevin Garnett was just feeling more confident. And then he used that confidence to play better. So... But I don't know if I want to call it a MacGuffin because it does imply some sort of magical powers. You could even go beyond that and say the opal is what brought Kevin Garnett into 
Howard's life, which gave him right. the opportunity to save his own skin. Um, so even if he doesn't take it, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, do I mean, I have I was saving that for later, but we could talk about that now about crystal healing. So there's this whole like pseudoscience called about crystals revolving around crystals. I'm sure you've heard of it before. Does that have to do like, with aligning your chakras? Yes, it does. Okay. It has exactly. I've heard that. of it. Um, so it basically like people believe that certain rocks have special powers and I actually have a quote uh, from the movie here. That's it's sort of tangential to this. Um, it's between uh, Howard and uh, Kevin Garnett and Kevin Garnett says, why has it got so many colors in it, man? What is this? That's the thing. They say you can see the whole universe in Opal. That's how fucking old they are. Holy. There's kind of this, like, it's this mystical object in a way, but it's clearly just a, like a, a hunk of stone. Um, and, uh, Kevin Garnett thinks it's really powerful or something that really speaks to him. And then, of course, when he, had, when he has in his possession, he feels like he's playing better. And there's evidence to show that Chris, like crystal healing is a powerful placebo and will you know, age you in kind of ways, the same way that placebos will, but nothing more than that. There, there's, no, there's no scientific studies that support um, like crystal healing as an actual like science. Uh, but uh, there's lots of things that they, they claim. Like uh, one of the things is that uh, quartz, uh, like amethyst and opals are all, are all very important for crystal healing. Aligning your chakras is a, is a, is a term that they use or uh, energy grids. So like there's two different methods that I, I know about. One of them is they, they put uh, rocks on your body like to it, the, release the energy in your, in your chakras. And then the energy grid is like you create, you lay down in like a, a like matrix of uh, crystals and they uh they're like supposed to like create like some sort of net of energy around you that will help protect you or draw out the toxins i don't know um there's also a, a concept called grounding where it's like you take something that's more complicated and link it or touch it closely to something that's more fundamental quote unquote fundamental it's so, so like a so like a mineral uh, would be more fundamental than like a table or something like because a table is made out of different things and it's like more complicated. I don't know. It's all made up. But basically the idea is to like somehow, basically the idea of crystal healing is to convince people that they're doing some sort of ancient mystical ritual so that they themselves heal themselves. Um, maybe they don't, they, they don't admit that, but that is how it works. Right. That's how okay. the placebo effect works. There's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff about it on um, uh, Wikipedia. I actually discovered that Wikipedia has a whole um, like series of articles about alternative medicine, um, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, there's also this really great quote that they have um, in here. They say, uh, paradoxically, practitioners... Oh, sorry. Uh, let me back up a little bit. Um, no, no, no. Paradoxically, uh, practitioners also hold the view that crystals have no intrinsic qualities, but that instead their quality changes according to both participants. Um, but they also say that their shape, color, and markings determine the ailments that the stone can heal. So it depends on you, but also these stones were great for this. Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, there's a lot of books written about this. Um, not a lot of consistency, you might say, in crystal healing. Well, um, um, while yeah. we're talking about crystal healing, I just have to bring up that one of my ASMR triggers is unintentional, like 
it's an unintentional ASMR trigger uh, where people explain things and pseudo <laughs> You've that before. pseudoscience is perfect for this because I don't actually want to learn about whatever they're explaining. I just want to hear somebody explain something that they know really well and have them even especially when it's combined with some sort of motion, uh, especially like hand motions and stuff that is really good for ASMR. So I've actually watch youtube videos with uh, crystal healing where oh, yeah? they explain exactly what they're doing exactly why this crystal and what chakra they're aligning and all that but notice how i haven't retained any of that information because i know <laughs> that it's bullcrap but it is really relaxing and nice for asmr so um another great benefit of crystal healing that's right. put it down <laughs> um but just to return to the opal itself, so are we going to say yes, MacGuffin, or no MacGuffin for the opal? I'm tempted to say no. I, I'm tempted to say no only because it doesn't play. It plays a role, but not a the not entirely driving role, right? The the goons in the movie Arno and his goons are not after the opal. Um, it's really Kevin Garnett uh, uh, and uh, Howard, right. and Howard is after it for a specific reason for something that he can get out of. Um, and Kevin Garnett's after it for a different reason. So th in that way, it, it plays that role between those two characters, but it doesn't drive the entire action of the movie. Okay. It's simply kind of a catalyst at the beginning. Yeah, Julia, know, doesn't, little... Julia doesn't care about The Rock. No, um, no. Howard's wife doesn't care about The Rock. His kids don't care about The Rock. I mean, really, if you get down to it, only like uh, the, the Rock itself is only something that's sought after by Kevin Garnett. And, yeah, uh, well, even at the auction house, right? Nobody else bets on it except for Kevin Garnett. Exactly. So, so like, what do, I don't know. <laughs> I think you could, I don't know. The term MacGuffin is kind of loosely thrown around. But but um, I don't think this falls. I think that you're right. It has to be something that's more central to the plot and the more people pursuing it, more characters pursuing it. I don't think it's true. Kevin Garnett wants The Rock far more than anybody else. And if that's not always true, then I don't know what is. You know, Kevin Garnett <laughs> and The Rock... Uh, it's a it's a union it's that we all know very well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, I think it's going to wrap up our overall section, and we can move on to cool Easter eggs. What do you got, Joey? I got a few that I stole from IMDb. And I thought were kind of interesting. First one. The film was inspired by the Safety brothers' uh, fathers. Maybe is it safety or is it softy? I think it, now that you say softy, that probably is it. I don't know how yeah. I put the long A in there. <laughs> the Softy brothers' uh, father's time working as a salesman slash runner for a man also named Howard at the Manhattan Diamond District. The Safty brothers and their father are also Jewish and avid basketball fans. So this is a deeply personal movie. Actually, this movie... Um, they were they were writing this movie uh, like early on in their career before they actually had a couple of other movies made, uh, but they weren't able to do it because they didn't ha they had uh, like large budget constraints. But after they had some success in like the uh, festival circuits, uh, they were actually offered a chance to make a superhero movie, which they turned down in in uh, favor of making this movie instead. Wow! So well, it's nice that cool. it, yeah, it has that uh, personal meaning to them i was Absolutely. really interested in seeing what happens inside those diamond districts because i've walked past them before but I, a man coming from humble means like myself don't spend a lot of time shopping for jewelry uh gold plated furbies exactly so <laughs> i it was it was really it was a part of the i don't know it was something i'd never seen before me either all right my next uh cool easter egg Howard tells his son that his neighbor acted in good times and coming to America. 
when they knock on the door of the neighbor is answered by Jane a John Amos, who was indeed the father in good times and the father of Eddie Murphy's love interest in coming to America. Interestingly enough, the Safdie brothers made a, a film called Good Time, which inspired Adam Sandler to take the role in this film. Um, so there you go, some connections there. So do you remember that scene? I do, he and he calls him a legend, even though he yes. doesn't let him use the bathroom. He, <laughs> he's like, no, no, like, don't say that, son. He's a legend. Like, ah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, so it really was him. It really was John Amos. All right, and my, my last one is uh, Yussi, who is the uh, one of the people that works for Howard, uh, who um, quits at the beginning of the movie. Uh, is played by a real-life jeweler, Maxud Agajani, who was embroiled in a social media spat with rapper Takeshi69 in 2018 over a $25,000 bracelet he said he lent to the performer and was never paid for. The situation was covered by several hip-hop media news outlets. So... That guy, yeah, Takashi uh, Six Nine. Uh, now, probably like technically, I guess you could say, has a bacon number now because he's like appeared tangentially to this other guy in a movie. So. <laughs> you say a bait? Oh, like like seven degrees yeah, of Kevin yeah. Bacon? Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah, it's Takashi Six Nine. Not he's a kind of a reprehensible human being. So it would make sense that he's embroiled in some other scandal here. Yes. Although yes, yes. I never understood the lending out of jewelry. That always just seems like an unnecessary risk to me. Um, yeah, it does. But, um, I don't know. I guess it's how, I guess it works. That is interesting. I'm sure people who actually care about Takashi six, nine might've, uh, recognized this guy. They were probably cheering. Yeah, they, hey, yes. I'm glad his shirt got, got ripped. <laughs> <laughs> But um, okay, so I have a Easter egg, uh, cool Easter egg for you. And there's a scene when they go to the Philadelphia 76ers basketball facility where Howard steals a basketball from somebody and scores a layup. And this reminded me that Adam Sandler is actually low-key good at basketball in real life, yeah. even though he doesn't look like he would be. Um, there's actually uh, several excuse me, several viral clips of him tossing dimes and making shots that uh, went viral last year, late last year in December, which is actually when this came out. So um, it's kind of cool to see him in a movie that's basketball adjacent, knowing yes. that he does have a passion for the game in real life. I was hoping actually that that was going to be how he wins is that he plays basketball for the uh, Celtics and helps oh, Kevin. Well, you're, th Kevin you're thinking like a Space Jam type thing? Sure. Where he shows up at the court and he's like, like we're down a player. Who's going to play? And he's like, this is this how I win. And he comes up there. <laughs> This goatee, he like scores layups. Yeah, he does what he needs to to help. Actually, no, that's how he does. He plays for the 76ers and blows the game so oh that he gosh. can win all the money. I don't know, man. Maybe we've got a, another, a different movie on our hands here. We could call yes. that one This Is How I Win. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so that's, those are our Easter eggs. Let's uh, just briefly talk about the songs in this movie. And while I think overall this movie had an amazing soundtrack, like the uh, we talked about it earlier, the soundtrack is almost overemphasized uh, over the dialogue at times, but it really helped to give this movie a unique feel. But... Um, the movie does take place in 2012 and they did a great job of uh including some solid 2012 throwbacks hmm. like uh amen by meek mill which was a uh song from dreams and nightmares it featured drake and it was in a, like a really huge hit back in 2012 and it was uh, nice that they included that song as well as swimming pools by kendrick lamar which is from uh good kid mad city another uh, like 
huge album from 2012 and i think they just did a good job of making it seem like this movie was taking place in exactly 2012 yeah oh well they said they they wanted to get like they got kevin garnett specifically because he was active in 2012 um and same thing with the weekend they were looking for someone that was active in like the new york city like uh underground areas like bars and stuff um at in 2012 and um and they came across him so like all of that was aligned. Like that was perfect. For them. It wasn't just like, oh, who can we get? It was like we need to get one of these guys, and they got them. So yeah, it's pretty cool. No, and, and uh, the weekend as well. Although I'm not as well. I didn't know about the weekend in 2012. So the song he was singing in that club probably would have been really awesome for a, a the weekend fan to get like a tiny little the weekend performance in the middle of this movie. It's sure. uh, yeah, another he was on the come up at that time. So I, I, I just think that it was really cool that they included such accurate depictions of the culture at the time. Um, yeah. And like the phones, too. Right. Like the texts and everything looked like. Yes. Back from 2012. Oh, yeah. The that iPhone, the that iPhone. really annoyed me, too. Why do they why do they make you read the screens? Yeah. That is an interesting thing about this movie as well, because without being able to pause, I felt like there were certain things that were not you couldn't understand. For instance, the. um the exact specifications of that Craigslist ad or uh, that Craigslist listing for the uh, apartment that Julia was like threatening to move into. I, I just don't know. I didn't get anything out of that when I first watched it. I had to go back and pause and read what she said. Um, I don't know. I think yeah. it's always a tough challenge to portray uh, text messaging and phones in movies. Well, like House of Cards like revolutionized that, like, and they did such a good job with that because they they started showing it on screen next to the characters, right, as they're on their phones, and it's just so much smarter. And it, it like all you have to do is get the actor to just type, and then you you write up what's on there. You know, you don't have to actually have them type out what's on the screen, right? But you, know? you do. I feel like you sacrifice a bit of the uh, like that might come across as too polished for a movie mm. like uncut gems um well i mean i do think that is intentional some of the uh i don't know just the low i wouldn't say low production quality but just not having things like that there's no title cards there's no narration this movie is very raw and yeah. uncut uh so i think that that could have broken that feeling to have text pop up on the screen but i mean i'm just imagining it maybe they could have found a better way to do it i do think it's tough to see what's on this the the phones in this movie oh yeah yeah all right um let's go to our quotes i got i got a single quote that we haven't covered already one quote that's right um and this is between howard and his wife um and uh his wife starts off by saying you know what howard say yes what i think you are the most annoying person i have ever met i hate being with you i hate looking at you and if I had my way, I would never see you again. Absolutely devastating. <laughs> I love this. You know, again, this is a moment of clarity in a, in a movie full of just like obscure dialogue and everyone's talking over each other. Even moments before this, right, where they're at the Passover feast and they're all like talking and everyone's talking at the same time. This is a moment where like Howard is talking fast and everything. Even in this moment, he kind of like interrupts her because she says, you know what? And then he kind of, finishes his first thought before starting the next thought. But this is a moment where everything's kind of silent and you just hear her deliver this and it's great. <laughs> I was like, like, yes, that's how I feel too. I didn't realize that it was annoying was his most uh, potent 
uh, character trait, but it definitely is. He is extremely annoying. And the fact that she like, like he doesn't listen at all. Like he's like, I, I, I'm rethinking this divorce thing. I'm rethinking this divorce thing. It's like, yeah, well you want to have it both ways, don't you? Because you already have, you have a mistress. The reason, and she, and you still want to have your family and have your wife and everything and keep up appearances and all that. But like, she clearly hates his guts. You know, uh, every scene they're, they're in together, it's so tense. And, she, and that's just, you know, Adina Menzel delivering on the, uh, on that regard, being the ice queen, uh, as you know. Yes. No, I mean, she's great. It's, it doesn't, I'm just not sure how we got here because the Howard is in such financial straits, but he also has so many assets that he could divest from and potentially save himself from this situation. I, I mean, I don't know what his divorce settlement is going to look like. So maybe that's part of it, but he has a very nice house. Okay. Yes. And he has three kids and uh, you know and an apartment nice car in new york city apartment yeah in new york city which is so expensive you know get rid it's of that like a corner too right it's like a corner apartment like the, the big window you can see like all around oh yeah. yeah it just it just didn't add up like i mean part of it it's like i don't know he obviously makes bad financial choices so whatever but he owns a successful jewelry store he has two abodes where he can stay I don't know, man. Like you're kind of ri- like I don't know what you're risking it for with these shakedown yes. guys. Go get rid of something. Go sell your car or something. I just, no, but he thinks he can get out of it. That's the thing, right? I guess he always so, thinks yeah. that he can he can he can talk his way out of it. Just like in this situation with his wife, he always thinks that he like he can. You know, I just gotta I just gotta have a conversation with them and they'll understand. You know, I just gotta do this and that and 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 uh, you know if I just pull it off for long enough. I'll make it out of here alive. Well, you know what I mean? Well, the way I saw it was, remember when we saw Eurovision and there's the uh, song along scene and I was like, oh, so I guess this is what it's like when just beautiful people who can sing all get together. They just break out into immaculate melody. Everything is yes. perfect together. Well, when I was seeing this, I was like, oh, I guess this is just how rich guys live their life. They're like, yes. I can have as many girlfriends as I want, kids as I want. I can have as many houses as I want. It doesn't matter doesn't matter i'm just so rich that i can live my life however chaotically i want and it's fine so yeah. um and obviously it's not fine but it's uh you know it, I, maybe it's just out of my realm of uh possibilities it's out of what anything i can possibly understand because the financial situation he's in is so different from mine yes uh, so yeah I, that, that it is what it is i i don't have anything more to say on it it's just it's so backwards the way that he decides to spend his money and stay in debt to people while he's got all these amazing assets nope um sorry do you want to skip the deeper section because we already covered it yes okay all right joey well i think it's going to wrap up our discussion on uncut gems which brings us to uh what we do at the end of every episode which is to deliver our rating (laughs) ratings one each. Ratings? So what rating do you want to give to Uncut Gems? I give this movie Gambling res- Recklessly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I do think that that is an overall, like if you want to say this movie goes deeper and teaches you a lesson, it's that gambling addictions are tough and um, probably impossible to beat without a support system, which Howard doesn't have. So uh, 
I don't know. I, like, it it seems like generous? a personal flaw for him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there are certainly people, good people out there that suffer from something like this, but he is not one of those. <laughs> okay. Well, I give this movie the gift of a fake Rolex, but I'm not nice. going to say it's fake when I give it to them. I'm just going to say how many X's is a Rolex. Uh, <laughs> No, the way you can tell is because the Rolex I'm giving to this movie, um, it makes noise when the the second hand moves. It ticks. Oh, really? Which uh, that's that's why Rolexes are so unique, right? Because they roll instead of ticking, so you can't hear them. Oh, I never knew that. Oh, that's it. I only know that not because I'm so well versed in, in Rolexes, it's because I listen to hip hop a lot, um, <laughs> and that's like a thing that people they're like, my Roly don't tick tock. You know, that's how you can tell it's real because my Rolex doesn't make any noise. Anyways, that's what I'm giving this movie. I think it's fitting. Um, and that's going to wrap that up. So, Joey, what's next on Affable Chat? Next, we are doing a biopic about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Rest in peace. Yeah. The movie is called On the Basis of Sex. R.I.P. Yeah, it's uh, definitely timely. Um, so, yeah, that'll be our next one. A lot to learn about RBG because uh, uh, just on the brief you know, reporting I've heard since her death... She did so much before she was even on the Supreme Court. So it's important oh, yeah. to uh, remember that as well. You can subscribe to Affable Chat on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever you, le- wherever you listen to us, uh, leave us a review. It really does help us grow. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Affable Chat. Or you can send us an email, affablechat at gmail.com. I keep thinking we're going to have to take TikTok off this list, but it keeps getting pushed back week after well, week. Well, yeah. Can I just say, I know that TikTok is officially supposed to stop working today, Sunday, when we're recording this. No, no, no. no. It got, it got um, boosted by uh, Oracle and Walmart. Well, right. Well, for another week. TikTok themselves sent out a notification on the app saying, we're not going anywhere. We're already confirmed staying forever. So, Dang. And they didn't give any reason. They just said, we here at TikTok USA are definitely not going anywhere, and you can count on us to not disappear. So... That's what Vine said. I'm tired of... No, Vine didn't say that. Vine <laughs> wasn't making any money. Vine's different. But I don't want to talk about it anymore because it is so redundant. If it ever disappears, we'll tell you you can't reach us there. But until then, <laughs> at Affable Chat on TikTok. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel. Uh, it's called Affable Chat. Check it out. And we're, Affable Chat is live on Tuesday nights, 7 p.m. Eastern, on twitch we have this thing it's called twitch and we're live every tuesday night at 7 p.m uh this tuesday i think we'll see a good a healthy um helping of R- ruth skater grinesburg one of the nice. characters that was already on our skate team uh she has been well documented and we'll see more of her this tuesday and um and every tuesday we're live at 7 p.m eastern so that's going to do it for this episode um for apple chat i'm benjamin and i'm joey thanks for listening